0: This morning's passage opens on the heels of our reading from last week. King David was not not out campaigning with his army, as a good king might. Instead, he was lounging around the palace in Jerusalem when he saw someone he wanted. And he took Bathsheba to bed. She became pregnant. And David began a campaign to cover it up, which ended in in Uriah Bathsheba's husband being murdered. But not to be deterred, once Uriah was out of the picture, David added Bathsheba to his collection of wives, and God, as we heard this morning, was not pleased. David broke at least two, if not four or five, of the Ten Commandments—adultery, murder, coveting, stealing, and perhaps at the center of it all, idolatry, for something other than God was at the center of David's motivations— And into this hot mess, God sends Nathan, the royal court prophet or priest, to try to talk some sense into David. Barbara Brown Taylor recounts this confrontation saying, the way Nathan did it was pure genius, not head-on like a fire-and-brimstone preacher, but sideways with a story. Why did he take such an indirect route because he had not come to condemn David. That would have been easy enough to do, given the facts at hand, but Nathan was up to something much more profound than that. He had come to change David's life. Nathan's job was to help the king see what he had done so that his conscience could be revived and his sense of justice restored. Then Israel might have the king they were supposed to have, instead of this handsome hero whose power had begun to stink. If David could see that, if he could pronounce judgment on himself, the impact would be a hundred times greater than if Nathan did it for him. So Nathan told David a story, knowing good and well how human beings tend to drop their defenses when they are listening to a story about someone else. And Nathan's story went something like this. Mary had a little lamb whose fleece was white as snow. And everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. The lamb followed her around all day, ate at the family table, and slept in Mary's bed. Mary was poor beyond poor, and the lamb was her only friend. They were inseparable and her neighbor was a big time successful rancher with multiple pastures filled with sheep. Yet when his fancy friends arrived for dinner, he did not take one of his many sheep to be slaughtered, but served up Mary's lamb instead. The greedy rancher appropriately outrages King David. In a fit of righteous, kingly anger, he pronounces a sentence The cruel rancher deserves to die and his estate should replace the lamb four times over. Nathan flips the tables. You, David, are the man. You are the rancher. Can you imagine the silence at that point? The tension so thick you could slice it and serve it for dinner? Will these be the last words out of Nathan's mouth? They certainly could be. But Nathan doesn't stop there. He continues and gives David a not-so-subtle reminder of who was supposed to be at the center of David's life. God. Yes, the same God that brought you military victories, made you king, gave you property and relationships, authority. And how do you show your gratitude? You have forgotten who you are. You have forgotten whose you are. For truth is, if David or if God were at the center of David's heart, he wouldn't be in this mess. And David comprehends Nathan's message immediately. He repents, I have sinned against God. And I would like to point out that it's not just God whom David has sinned against. Uriah, Bathsheba, the couple's friends, family, and acquaintances, who are at at least puzzled, if not irate, about all of this, all of the servants who have passed messages, soldiers who have orchestrated the death of one of their own, midwives, cooks, the entire royal court, and everyone in Jerusalem and beyond who are gossiping about the king's lack of morals. There are many, many people who have been affected by David's great sins. And given all of this, all of the chaos and pain that David's actions have caused, David acknowledges his failures, and faces the consequences. But Nathan says to David, now the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. God does not give David the punishment he thinks he deserves. Now while David will face the grim consequences of his actions for the rest of his life, he is allowed to continue living, to continue even to be the king, And as we tell more stories of David's life in coming weeks, you can judge for yourself whether he makes the most of it and keeps God in the center of his will. Contemporary theologian Eugene Peterson says, one of the frequently misunderstood features of the gospel by outsiders is this, that a confession of sin isn't a groveling admission that I am a terrible person. It doesn't require what is sometimes described as beating yourself up. Insiders to the gospel know that the sentence, I have sinned against the Lord, is a sentence full of hope. It is full of hope because it is a sentence full of God. In the Christian life, our primary task isn't just to avoid sin, which is impossible anyway, but to recognize sin. And Peterson continues, when sin is discovered in us, our guilty fears often produce a sense of condemnation. But if we stay with the story, the God story, the David story, the Jesus story, before long, the condemnation gives way to the surprised realization of grace, mercy, and forgiveness. David's sins, enormous as they were, were wildly outdone by God's grace. Let's take a minute to to look at God's grace in our passage, because it shows up with Nathan's entrance. Nathan calls David to account. It's not often we think about speaking truth to power as something that is grace-filled. Because I'm not talking about judgmentalism or self-righteous finger-pointing, for these are not worthy of God. But God's grace extends through Nathan who takes a risky, vulnerable chance on David and leads him to an ugly truth. Nathan cannot turn a blind eye because in doing so, he would be condoning an abusive situation that has already led to travesty and death. Nathan calls David back to the faithful path. And I suspect we have all had someone lovingly point out a flaw in our behavior before. Anyone with parents, for instance, or anyone who has had a good relationship with a friend, a lover, a spouse, has no doubt experienced a truth being spoken or exchanged. And when the mirror is held up for us, I wonder if may we all be so graceful as David in our response, even and especially when we know the consequences. I have sinned. It is not an easy thing to mean. And yet to be faithful to God means recognizing the truth of both our sin and and the abuses perpetrated by others. For God calls us beyond both of them into a new relationship. And God calls us to be accountable to and help each other. Of course, our story this morning is not just about personal sins. The story can be reflected out into our culture. For are there prophetic words being spoken in our country that need to be heard today? You betcha. Here's one. I picked up a book by Tahasini Coates this week. It's called Between the World and Me. Coates' book gives his perspective and his life story of being born in America in a black body. He grew up in Baltimore in a black neighborhood. He and I are about the same age, in our 30s, and he is now a staff writer for The Atlantic. It is a fascinating and provocative book, filled with truth-telling of his experience as a person of color in our modern times. And it is not sitting well with many people. His insights are incredibly difficult for me to read. He indicts our entire culture for building, for building a so-called American dream that is really only ever available to people who are not black or brown. Joanne and I have been discussing it before she left and we both found our way way to it over the weekend, and we would like to suggest it as a book for us to read as a community. Not because it's easy, it isn't, but it is powerful in his truth-telling. The sins he points to in our society are enormous and they are not new to most of us in this room. But I've been listening to Coates give interviews on NPR and The Daily Show, and I am impressed by the heart and pain that comes through when he speaks. It seems to me that while his words are filled with anger in the book, he does not wish to stay angry. Like Nathan, he seems to see the issues clearly and cleverly he delivers his concern in his book as a letter to his son. Coates does not see a reason to hope about what comes next for race relations in our country. And yet, there is something in him that hopes. I would be so bold as to name that something in him that at least in the interviews, he can't quite put his head around, but he still has hope. And I would say that something is God. I resonate with him because I do not see a clear path forward for our culture either. There is not a simple choice or series of choices to be made that can level the playing field because the field is built on white privilege and white supremacy. And yet, even in this moment of truth-telling, there is hope. And I am reminded by a quote from an aboriginal activist group in Queensland. If you have come here to help me, you are wasting your time. But if you have come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. Then let us work together. Let us speak truths and listen to truths. For God's grace extends to all, and God rejoices when we repent. And God desires us to be in relationship with her and with each other. So may we be so brave as to listen and respond to God's word together. Amen.